All right, this is the seminar Christ Our Righteousness, a three-part seminar. And in our first part, I see we have a couple of new faces, so uh, I'll, just do, uh, I'll just do a little bit of a review as what well. we looked at in our first uh, hour together. That was we looked at the law, the Ten Commandments. And uh, we looked at the role of the law in the life of the Christian and how it reveals a beautiful picture of the character of God. And as we look into that character of God, we realize we are sinners, we realize we come short in comparison to Him. Uh, and then He writes those commandments in our hearts, those promises. And we looked at the Ten Commandments as ten wonderful, incredible, beautiful promises that God gives to us. Uh, so if you want to know more about that, um, actually this message has already been recorded, being recorded here, but it has already been recorded because I've do, been doing this seminar in different countries and different places. And uh, you can go to... Um, our ministry website, which is livingwater.no, and you have a lot of English material there, a lot of English sermons, and um, you will, uh, if you're interested in that particular message, um, it is, I have to think for a moment what I titled it, because <laughs> I gave it a different title here, um, but there's a series uh, on that website, and it's called The Unhindered Gospel, The Unhindered Gospel, and uh, there it's entitled The Perfect Mirror. The perfect mirror. So if you want to listen to it again, or you missed the first session, uh, go to www.livingwater.no, go to the Unhindered Gospel, which is under audio messages, and then a perfect mirror. Um, what we're going to look at here this afternoon is the covenants. And uh, I just really look forward to this Bible study. It's going to be a Bible study, so I hope you have your Bibles with you. And we're going to look at the meaning. What, what, what about all this old covenant, new covenant thing? How do we know the difference? Uh, what covenant are we in? Um, yeah, how does this all relate? How do we explain this to others? So um, let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll get right into it. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to be at this convention, at this conference. We are grateful that we can come before you. We are thankful that we can have a Bible study together. Uh, Lord, we love your word. We, uh, we think it's, it's worth studying, it's worth reading, it's worth embracing and living by. And that's why we're here. Uh, but Lord, we also want to freely confess that there are things in your word that are sometimes hard to understand or hard to explain to others. Uh, and perhaps for many of us, the covenants is just one of those uh, topics. And so we do pray that you'll give us clarity this afternoon as we have a fresh look at the two covenants and how they relate to us today. For we ask these things in your precious name. Amen. All right. Uh, take your Bible, and what we're going to begin by doing is we're going to look at two principles regarding a covenant. And I'm not talking yet about the difference between the old and the new covenant. We'll get to that a little bit uh, further into our study here this afternoon. But the first thing we want to do together is simply look at what is the principle of a covenant. Um, and let me just ask it right here. We can have a little bit of participation here. What do you think a covenant means? If you would just have to describe it in your own words. A covenant. Okay, a contract. Anything else? A love relationship with boundaries. Okay, a love relationship with boundaries. I like that. Any, any other uh, definitions? Or, or what do you think of when you hear the word covenant? A promise? Mm-hmm. How about an agreement, right? I agree to do this for you, you agree to do that for me. We have a covenant. We can seal that by a covenant, an agreement. But all the answers are correct. Um, go to Galatians, that's in the New Testament, Galatians, written by Paul. Uh, chapter 3, Galatians, chapter 3, and have a look at verse 15. Galatians, chapter 3. And verse 15. And whoever has it in an English version Bible, you can go ahead and read that. Galatians 3.15. My brothers and sisters, I'm going to use an everyday example. When two people agree on a matter and sign an agreement, no one can break it or add anything to it. Right. So in the version that you're reading, it's even using the word agreement. Uh, maybe someone, someone else has another version where it will say covenant. Uh, in my Bible, actually here, New King James, it says covenant, but it's, it's the same thing, the agreement, the covenant. 
Now, what does it say about this covenant or this agreement? What is the principle that we find in this verse regarding a covenant? Can't change it. Okay, it's unchangeable, right? It's unchangeable. When is it unchangeable? The moment it's... Signed. Signed, or there's another word that is used here in the verse, confirmed, right? Signed, confirmed. Okay, Bob, there we got it. That's the covenant. Uh, in our Western world, you have you know, these legal uh, issues that are oftentimes done with a signature. If you sign it, and okay, black on white, that's confirmed. That cannot be changed. Um, in ancient times, in biblical times, it maybe happened in a different way. But, but the principle is the same. The principle is once a covenant is confirmed, it cannot be changed. Okay, so that's the principle number one regarding a covenant. We're talking about a covenant um, this afternoon, principle number one. Once it's confirmed, it cannot be changed. Now let's look at a second principle. We go from the book of Galatians to the book of Hebrews. And turn with, to me, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. And we're going to begin in verse um, 16. Verse 16 and 17. Now, um, the word that is used in verse 16 and 17 is a little bit of a different word in the English. Actually, in the English, in, in my Bible, the New King James, it talks about a testament, but actually the Greek word for testament that is used in this passage is the same word that is used in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 15 for the word covenant. So we have the same he, um, uh, Greek word, um, which is diathike, which means covenant or agreement. Now, in the setting of Hebrews chapter 9 that we're about to read, it's the setting of a, what we would call in English, a testament, or we could also call it a will, uh, which is also simple illustration. If a father has three sons, and um, he's about to, to, to die, uh, he writes a testament, or a will, signs it, so that when he dies, then they know how his wealth is to be divided amongst his three children. Now, when he dies, that's the moment that the covenant is, 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 is confirmed. You cannot change it, right? Unchangeable testament. If he died and the sons, they come along and say, hey, I want actually a little bit more than you, that would be a dishonor, right? Because the covenant has already been confirmed. Now, look at what the text says here in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 16 and 17. For where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be what? What does it say? What, 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 what must there be for there to be a testament? Death. The death of a testator, right? So it says the death of a testator. Verse 17, for a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. And again, uh, why I bring in this text is because the same word is used, covenant. So you can say, okay, the, the covenant is only in force after the one that made the covenant dies in the situation of a, uh, of a testament, right? An inheritance is involved here. And we're going to see in a moment that when it comes to the gospel, right, the gospel covenant, it is also an inheritance involved. There is an inheritance involved. There is a testament that is involved. Uh, which, which we're going to uh, see in just a moment. So two clear principles. Principle number one regarding the covenant, once it's confirmed, it cannot be changed. Principle number two regarding the covenant or testament is that it is enforced when the testator dies. Okay? So far so good? Now, you're still in Hebrews chapter 9, and let's back up a couple of verses here. And uh, how does this then play in to the uh, covenants. Look at verse 13 to 15. Hebrews chapter 9, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 13. I can read these. It says, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death. 
for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Now, there's a lot here, so let's kind of try to unpack this together. The writer of the book of Hebrews, first of all, reminds about the sacrifices that were made, um, which pointed forward to what? What were all those sacrifices actually really about? Was it just, you know, the... Was it just in vain that, that all this blood was being spilled with animals? Or was it was it pointing forward to something? It was pointing forward to Christ, right? So, so all of these um, uh, offerings were pointing forward to Christ, right? And Christ, it says in verse um, 15, is the mediator of the new covenant. So in the Old Covenant, they would sacrifice lambs and goats, right? And all these kind of sacrificial animals. And it was all pointing forward to Jesus. And when Jesus came, he made a new covenant. We'll, we'll look more at the difference between the Old and New in just a moment. But, but I want us to focus for this moment on the principles of the covenant. Jesus established the new covenant. And look at what it says in verse 15. How did he establish it? What did he have to do in order to confirm the new covenant? Die. He had to die, right? Do you see that in verse 15? By means of death. By means of death. So, the covenant, the new covenant, let's just talk about the new covenant for a moment. The covenant that you and I are in was confirmed by Jesus. And at what moment was it confirmed? At his death. Now, when Jesus died and the new covenant was confirmed, can anything that, that covenant, can anything be changed about that after his death? No, that's the principle, right? Remember Galatians 3.15 um, and Hebrews chapter 9, these two principles. At the death of the testator, you cannot change the testament. So, does Jesus through his death give you and I an inheritance? What kind of inheritance do we receive through the death of Jesus, through the death and resurrection of Jesus? Eternal life, right? So, eternal life is given through the gospel of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. This was confirmed at the cross, and at the death of Jesus, the new covenant was confirmed, and it cannot be changed. Now, I'm going to give you a couple of illustrations here, so that I think we'll able to flesh this out, and that you'll able to understand this a little bit better. There are things that are part of the New Covenant that had to, by necessity, be established before the death of Jesus. Now let's think about that for a moment. What are some of the things that we do as Christians um, that we would consider part of the New Covenant? Well, one of those things is that, as a church, we um, remember the death of Jesus... And there's, a, there's an act that we do. What is that? What do, how do we remember that? Communion, communion right? The Lord's, the Lord's Supper. Now, at communion, let's just, you know, uh, back up a little bit here. Push the rewind button. Go back 2,000 years. Think about Jesus in the upper room with his disciples, with his 12 disciples. He breaks the bread, and he says, this is my body. He takes the grape juice. He says, this is my blood. And then they eat and, and they drink together. And he says, do this in remembrance of me. He also washes their feet. And he says, do this in remembrance of me. Now, what was it a remembrance of? It was a remembrance of his death, right? That he died for us. Now, isn't that interesting that Jesus introduces a memorial of his death before he dies? You get that? He... Through that, through that, what was then known as Passover, but for us has now become known as the Lord's Supper, is actually a memorial of the death of Jesus. We take the bread, we take the, we take the grape juice, and we think, oh, Jesus died for me. So what we have as a memorial, right, of his death was introduced before his death. Why was it introduced before his death? Because it was part of the new covenant. And once Jesus died on the cross, the covenant was confirmed and nothing could be added to it or taken away from it. Does that, does that make sense? This is just one illustration. Let's take another one. What do we do as Christians? What, what, what happens when someone uh, gets to know the gospel um, and they make a decision, a public decision for, for Christ? What do they do? They get baptized. Now... 
When you read uh, the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, where do you first encounter baptism? The New Testament. The New Testament. Where, in particular? Who started baptizing? John. John the Baptist, right? Now, John the Baptist lived just, well, basically at the same time as Jesus, right? John the Baptist, the Baptist starts baptizing people, and he says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then Jesus, and then of course he pointed to Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God which cometh to take away the sins of the world. And Jesus starts proclaiming the same message, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John the Baptist was the forerunner of Jesus. Isn't it interesting that the forerunner of Jesus introduces baptism, which Jesus, by the way, did as an example for us. He was baptized. And this became a practice within the new covenant. And it was established prior to the death of Jesus. And it was further experienced and practiced by the Christians, right? Followers of Jesus in the New Covenant. Very interesting. Um, baptism basically took the place of circumcision in the Old Covenant. And so what we're seeing here is both the Lord's Supper, right, communion, Baptism are all things that we find introduced shortly before the death of Jesus, that Jesus did, right? And then Jesus, when he died, he confirmed the covenant, and so you and I, in the new covenant, practice these things, uh, following the principles of the covenant, because we cannot change this covenant. It's like, think about like, like it as a... Uh, as a when we think of covenants in our kind of society, we often think of kind of like documents, right? So, you know, let's make an agreement. This is what I want you to do, and this, and this, and this, and this, and this. So, I give it to you. You know, you, you sign it. This is the agreement between us both that we're going to follow. Now, in the um, society that Jesus lived, there were not really the written documents. So, we need to think about the covenant and the testament more as a matter of a life. Jesus himself lived his life, and his entire life was his testament, right? So everything Jesus did, everything Jesus said, all the miracles he performed, everything is really Jesus saying, this is my testament to you, right? This is my covenant with you. That's why Jesus said, follow me, right? So the covenant is agree agreement is like looking at the life of Jesus, say, okay, I want to follow him, I want to follow Jesus, I want to be like him. Jesus introduces the Lord's Supper. Jesus is baptized and says he also should be baptized. And so these things he introduces, and then he's crucified, right? And what is the last thing that he said on the cross? It is finished, which was a confirmation of the testament. The testament has been written, or better said, the testimony, the testament has been lived, right? The testament has been lived. The testament has been confirmed by the death of Jesus and now is given to the Christian church. It's given to the followers of Jesus. So you and I, living 2,000 years after the coming of Christ, we have the Gospels and we read about the life of Jesus and we say, hey, Jesus did this. I'm also going to, I'm going to enter into a covenant with Christ. I'm going to do that as well. Jesus was doing this. I enter into a covenant with Christ. I'm going to do that as well. Now, Thinking about that, Jesus also obeyed his heavenly Father and obeyed the commandments of God. Yes or no? He did, right? Did Jesus keep the Sabbath? Yes. Now, this is quite powerful because there are many, there are many good arguments from Scripture why we should keep the Sabbath. There are many. I think the best argument is often one that is overlooked by many Seventh-day Adventists, and I think it's the covenant topic. Because think about this, if Jesus during his life keeps the Sabbath, right, and we have many, 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 uh, a lot of evidence regarding that in scripture, he keeps the Sabbath, then he is crucified, confirms the covenant, that means that the covenant cannot be changed. What you will often hear is when you approach Christians from other denominations, and you will hear, well, you know, they keep Sunday holy. You will ask them why they keep Sunday. They will tell you, on many an occasion, they will tell you, in memorial of the resurrection. resurrection. Well, two days too late. <laughs> right? 
Two days too late. Because if on Friday the covenant was confirmed, the principle of the covenant is it cannot be changed. So if Sunday sacredness is in memorial of the resurrection, well, there's a problem. Because Jesus already confirmed the covenant when he died, right? So the covenant's become a very, very important topic for us to study. Important for us to understand um, these principles that Christ has given to us um, and the principles that he wants us to live by. Now, let's go here to... Um, let's go to Hebrews 9 again, if you're in Hebrews 9. And let's look a little bit then at the uh, difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant because there's a lot of confusion... Um, within Christianity at large regarding the two covenants. Uh, what you'll often hear is that the uh, Old Covenant is the Old Testament and the New Covenant is the New Testament. Have you heard that? <laughs> or something like the Old Covenant is uh, basically the law of God and the New Covenant is grace. Have you heard that one? Yeah. So this is kind of very common understandings. Uh, but let's look a little bit closer. What is actually the Old Covenant and what is actually the New Covenant? So far... We've understood that the covenant has two principles. Once it's established, it cannot be changed. And it's established within the gospel context at the death of Jesus, right? Now, in Hebrews chapter 9, Hebrews chapter 9, look at verse 18. Um, and here we're going to read from verse uh, 18 to 20. And here it describes the first covenant, or what is many times referred to as the old covenant. Okay? Listen to what it says. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. Now, what the writer of Hebrews is doing, basically, is saying, okay, uh, you know, we have both these covenants. Um, the first covenant was, 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 there was blood involved, and in the second covenant, there was blood involved. Now, what was the blood in the first covenant? The sacrificial animals, right? What was the blood in the new covenant? The blood of Jesus, right? Now, look at what it says. Verse 19. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Uh, and then it says he goes on to, to uh, sprinkle the, the tabernacle. Um, so there is an agreement entered here, a covenant entered here with blood. There's, there's this blood involved, and it's the blood of the sacrificial animals, which was, of course, a pointing forward to uh, Jesus. Now, um, we're going to, it talks here about Moses that had given them the law. Now, we talked about that yesterday as well in our workshop, that uh, in Exodus chapter 20, Moses received the Ten Commandments, right, that were then uh, given to the Hebrews. Now, with Hebrews chapter 9 in mind, go back to chapter 8, and I want you to take a look at verse 7, because what, what, was, what went wrong with the first covenant? What, what was it that, what, why was there a second covenant? Let, let us put it that way. You know, some people make it appear that, that God made a wrong move. It's like, okay, you know, a covenant is an agreement, so I'm going to make an agreement with, with Mark, you know, right? And um, but then I find out that, you know, the terms weren't really good, so I'm just going to make a new one. You know, so is it God that had plan A, but plan A failed, and so he went to plan B? You know, it, it's like, okay, I'll save you by the law. Oh, bad decision. Didn't work. Okay, I'll save you by grace. Is that how it works? It's like, it's like, do we make God, in a sense, like, you know, uh, the faulty one within the covenant? Uh, that's how it often appears. Um, what we need to understand, that the covenant is an agreement between two parties, right? In uh, the biblical covenant context, it is God and man, God and mankind, right? God and human beings. Um, so we have a first agreement between God and human beings, and we have a second agreement between God and human beings. The first covenant, the second covenant, or the old covenant and the new covenant, right? Now, when you make an agreement, there has to, be a, there has to come from two sides, right? It's, it's like a marriage. If, you, if you're married, um, in order for that marriage to function, 
there's going to have to be two people that are going to have to put something into that marriage. If there's only one that puts their love and their time and their strength into that marriage, and the other could care less, is that, is that going to work? Is that covenant relationship of marriage going to work? Not, it's going to be very difficult. <laughs> It's not going to work. There needs to be two. And so, between the covenant of God and man, what we're going to find out in a moment is that the first covenant, or what is also often referred to as the old covenant, from God's side, he's the same. But the people were not entering into the agreement. Right? They're as they should have. In the new covenant is a picture of how people do enter into the agreement with God that he wants and how that prospers and flourishes in this relationship between God and man. Now, Hebrews actually shows us what the problem was in the first covenant. Go to chapter 8 and um, look, at, look at verse 7 and 8. This is quite, quite plain language. It says, for if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. So there was a fault with the first covenant, but the fault, my friends, was not with God. And verse 8 tells us that. It says, because finding fault with who? Them. them. Finding fault with them. And, and so the problem was not with God. It's not that God had plan A and it didn't work, and so he, he used plan B. God's terms of the covenant have always been the same. The Bible tells us that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In Malachi it says, I am the Lord thy God, I do not change. So the terms of the covenant have always been the same. It's not like in the Old Testament we're saved in a different way than the New Testament, which would, by the way, just not be fair. Can you imagine, like, oh, I'm just born at the wrong time? How would that be in the, in the final judgment analysis? Like, yeah, I have an objection, you know? <laughs> like, that's not fair. <laughs> and, and rightfully so. Uh, but that's not the case. God has always saved people the same way. That's why in the two covenants, there's both, in both instances, there is blood. Now, what is the blood? The blood symbolizes the forgiving, cleansing power of Christ, right? Now, if I was living in the old covenant time, during the first covenant, and I took a lamb to the sanctuary, and I placed my hands on the head of that lamb, and I confessed my sin, and I walked out of that sanctuary, was I forgiven? Yes, I was forgiven, perfectly forgiven. Now, today, when I confess my sins on Jesus, which is the Lamb that has been slain for me, am I forgiven? Yes. So the terms are the same. The one only points forward to the one that is coming. <coughs> so both covenants involve blood. Both covenants, we need, you know, the power of God. Um, but the first covenant had a problem, and the problem was with the people. Now, let's find out then what exactly that problem is. And for that, we need to go back into the Old Testament. Turn to Exodus chapter 19, second book in the Bible, the book of Exodus, and go to chapter 19, which is the chapter just before um, the Ten Commandments. The law of God is being given to his people here. Exodus chapter 3, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 3, so we get a little bit of the context here. It says, And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. Now, now look at what it's saying here. The Lord is saying in verse 3, uh, verse 4, he says, I took you out of Egypt. I bore you on eagle's wings. Now, let's see. For, for those of you that were here yesterday, you'll, you'll get this question, and hopefully the rest of us as well. How did he take them out of Egypt? What was that, what was that moment of, 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 of that actually brought them out? What, what had to happen? Yes, and connected with that? It's true. Yes, the death of the lamb, right? 
Remember that they, it was a template, it was the death of the firstborn of the Egyptians, but at the same time, how was God's people protected from that plague? They had to slay a lamb, which was the Passover lamb, which pointed forward to Jesus, which died exactly on Passover. So what God is saying to them here, now they've come out of Egypt, right? They've come to Mount Sinai. God is speaking to them. He's about to give them his law, his Ten Commandments. And he says, before he gives his Ten Commandments, he says, remember how I took you out of Egypt. Don't forget that. I took you out of Egypt. Remember the Passover lamb. Remember that lamb. That's pointing forward to the coming Messiah that will set you free from your sins. And then, verse uh, 6 He says, God speaking to his people, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before them all these words which the Lord commanded him. Now look at verse 8. Here you see now the response of the people. So what has God said? Okay, here's he's going to make a covenant with his people. He says, okay, this is the covenant. I took you out of Egypt. I set you free. Remember the Passover lamb. You know, this is what I've done for you. This is what I want to do for you. Now, and and, and I want you to keep my commandments and my law. And then the people respond, verse 8, Then all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. That sounds like a real good answer to me. (laughs) Isn't that a real good answer? There's just one problem with that answer. And that is that they sought to do that in their own strength. Oh, God, thanks. We'll do it. It's almost like, you know, um, God, thank you for taking us out of Egypt. Thank you for bringing us here. Thank you for giving us a good part. We'll do it on our own right now. We'll be fine. You have set us free. You give us your commandments. You've done a lot for us. Now let us do something for you. Give those commandments. We'll keep them. Now, how long did it take before Israel was stooped into um, apostasy and far away from what God's standard had was for them? How many chapters into the story? Not much. As a matter of fact, you come down to, um, I think it's chapter 32, if I remember correctly, where they're worshipping a golden calf, right? Yeah, exactly, chapter 32. They are dancing around a golden calf, okay? Another God, I mean, a number of, a, a number of commandments here are broken, right? The covenant is, is obviously um, broken here. Um, as a matter, it's, it's just a matter of, of a short period into the story. Um, the problem, my friends, with the first covenant was not from God's side. It was from man's side. And the problem was that they believed that they could keep the commandments in their own strength. Yes, God, give us your law. We will do it. We will keep it. Now, another thing that is very important for us to understand here is that both covenants, both the first and the second covenant, involve ten commandments. So, uh, you know, it's not about like God, okay, in in the old covenant here he gives his ten commandments, but then, oh, that wasn't a good idea, and so we go over to grace. As a matter of fact, there's a scripture in the New Testament where it talks about the new covenant, and where it talks about what God wants to do in the new covenant. Um, Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Let us go back to the book of Hebrews, which is really an... um, When you say the book of Hebrews to someone that hasn't read scripture, you know that they'll usually look in the Old Testament to find that book. (laughs) It's like, oh, Hebrews, oh, that must be before, you know, must be in the Old Testament. But Hebrews is really a, um, uh, it's a New Testament book. It's about the the, the early church and their understanding of of, of this, this transition from sacrificial services to accepting Jesus and all of this. Um, And in Hebrews chapter 10, And verse 16 and 17, we have the new covenant uh, laid out. Um, And listen to what it says. Hebrews, uh, chapter 10, sorry, chapter 10, verse um, 16 and 17. It says, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. 
Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Okay, so this is the covenant. What does God want to do? He wants to write his commandments in the hearts and minds of the people. Now, now let me ask you a question. Do you think God wanted to do that for the people, the, 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 the Jewish nation, the Hebrews, the Israelites that were standing at Mount Sinai? Of course God wanted to do that. It's not like God said, oh, I wrote them in stone. Oh, in the new covenant, I better write them in the heart. That works better. No, God, God is not changing his mind. God is not changing his methods. God is not changing his way. God gave the commandments in stone to Moses, right? But of course, it was not to stay on stone. The stones was also only a, a resemblance of what God wanted to do in their stony heart. But that was the problem. They had a stony heart. And, 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 and the problem was that, that they thought they could do it. They said, God, okay, you, 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 you've given us those, those tablets of stone. We will keep it. We don't need you in this. And that is an absolute impossibility. The Ten Commandments, we cannot keep the Ten Commandments without the power of God. And so in the first covenant, they, they strive to do that. They, they try to do that. They fail. And so, and so God, says, God, God comes back and, say, and he says again, Ah, let me, let me make a new covenant with you. Let me make a new covenant with you. It still revolves around the Ten Commandments. It still revolves around Christ. It still has blood. It's the blood of Jesus. It's still the Ten Commandments. But let me write it in your heart. And this is the new covenant. The new covenant is when we say yes. Yes, Lord. Write your commandments in my heart. Which is really, when we looked at in, in our first study in this session... The Ten Commandments are really a revelation of Jesus Christ. So if in the New Covenant we accept Jesus into our hearts, we are accepting the Ten Commandments into our hearts. Because Jesus' life is a full portrayal of the Ten Commandments. Right? I mean, to the very, to, to the most, in the most beautiful way, it has lived out those Ten Principles that lead to happiness and joy and peace in life. And so... As we look at the topic of the two covenants, we need to dismiss our minds of the fact that, of, of the idea that God changes his mind. And we also have to come a little bit away from the chronological understanding that we often have of the covenants. And that's because we call it, or they're often referred to as the old and the new covenant. What we think, when I hear old, that's before, new, that's after. Now, I'm going to make a statement that might confuse you, but then we'll try to back it up with Scripture. The New Covenant is actually older than the Old Covenant. <laughs> right? So, because we think of like Old Covenant, Old Testament, New Covenant, New Testament, actually, kind of for a moment, try not to think about the chronological thing to this. And just think of it as two covenants. Okay, we've got two agreements. God is the same from his side. Okay, the one agreement is that God says, I want to write my commandments in your heart. And man says, okay, I'll do it. I don't need you to write them. You just give them to me. I'll do it. The other covenant is, okay, God, you write them because I cannot do that. You write them in my heart, but I believe you. I trust you. I want you. And I want to live by that. You write them in my heart, right? Now, you can see that approach, those two covenants, in the book of Genesis in the very beginning. Do you know that when Adam and Eve had two sons, that one lived by the Old Covenant and one lived by the New Covenant? One lived by the First Covenant, we could say, and the other lived by the Second Covenant. Um, remember the story of Cain and Abel. Now, what happened with Cain and Abel? Adam and Eve have to leave the garden. They've eaten of the forbidden fruit. They have sinned. They have come short of the glory of God, the wages of sin is death, right? But hope has been given to them, a promise has been given to them, the gospel has been introduced to them. And that is that if they put their faith in a coming Messiah, and the death of that Messiah on their behalf, then they will be set free from sin, okay? So here you have the firstborn of Adam and Eve, which was Cain, um, and he brings to the altar, you remember? What, what does he sacrifice? You remember? Maybe we should read it together. Go to, go, to, go to Genesis chapter 4. It's interesting. Because this story is really a picture of these two covenants. I'll begin in verse 1. 
Uh, Genesis chapter 4. Now you remember Genesis chapter 1, perfect world created by God. Genesis chapter 2 elaborates upon that perfect world. Genesis chapter 3 is the fall, right? They take up the forbidden fruit. They have to leave the Garden of Eden. And chapter 4, now Adam and Eve have their first two sons. Chapter 4 verse 1 says, Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. And by the way, this is just a little bit of a little bit of interesting to put in here. Do you know that in the original text, it says, I have required the man of the Lord. Which kind of, in, it, it, it shows us that Adam and Eve believed that their first son was going to be that promised Messiah. Remember, they, remember how God said in Genesis 3.15, he says, you know, I'll give you a promise. Out of the woman will come a seed, which will crush the head of the serpent. It's the first messianic prophecy. You will have, a son will come that will conquer all evil, that will conquer all death. And Adam and Eve have their first son and think, okay, this is it. This is going to be the one. This is going to be the one that's going to save us and set us free. And oh, what a disappointment. When the one that they put all their hopes in became the first murderer, right? The first murderer. He murdered his brother Abel. And so here, um, if we could put Cain and Abel besides each other, like they're ready to run the race of life, Cain would have a way advantage over Abel. Do you know what Abel means? It means nothing. <laughs> yeah. So what the, the, the name means? Like, nothing. Like, doesn't matter the second son. We've got the first one already. And he's going to set us all free. And so here comes Abel way back, and Cain is in the front, and it's like, okay, they're going to run the race of life, right? And, and, and God says to his, to his people, sacrifice an animal, sacrifice a lamb. What are you doing when you're sacrificing a lamb? You're saying, okay, I don't trust in myself, but I trust. A life has to be taken. I trust that this, this points forward to the life that Jesus Christ will give for my sins. I've sinned, I've come short. But... And, and the wages of sin is death. But in order for me not to have that eternal death, this animal is dying on my behalf, and it's picturing the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ, that will die on my behalf. And Abel believed that. He believed that he could not live an obedient life without the power of God. And he put his faith in the Lamb. And he said, okay, this Lamb, I must take the life of this Lamb. It points forward to my Savior that gives me strength to live an obedient life for God. Cain, on the other hand, said, you know what, I, I, don't, want to, I don't want to sacrifice an animal. I don't, want to, I don't want all that, you know, blood and stuff. I'll just bring the fruits of my field. And to make a long story short, you can read it there in Genesis chapter 4. Of course, God was pleased in the sacrifice of Abel, but was not pleased with the sacrifice of Cain. Cain gets angry and upset about that, and he takes the life of his brother Abel. But right there in those two sons, we see the two covenants. Cain is saying, I will bring my own fruits, my own works. That is fine, right? It's fruit that he's bringing. You know, this is later on, we know it's the, it's the fruit of self-righteousness, right? Like, I can do it, God, I don't need you, and I don't need the blood of a lamb. Abel is saying, no, I can't do this in my own strength. I want to live an obedient life, I want to follow you, but it takes the blood of a lamb because... I'm weak and I'm frail, but I need the strength of the Messiah that's going to come. Now, not only do we find it in the two sons of Adam and Eve, but we also find it, and this, this is really good, and we have about 13 minutes left to look at this illustration. Paul, in the New Testament, uses two other sons to illustrate the two covenants, the two sons of Abraham. And this one is really crystal clear. So turn with me to Galatians chapter 4, and let's look at these two illustrations, or this illustration of these two sons. Go to Galatians and the fourth chapter. And this illustration even shows us why we call it the New Covenant. Because you might think, well, if there's no chrono chronology necessarily involved here, then why is it called New and Old? Well, we'll find out in this illustration. Galatians and the fourth chapter. Um, and I'm going to begin in verse, let's see, I'll begin in verse um, 22, I think it is. Well, let, yeah, 22. 
Galatians 4, verse 22. Listen to what it says. For it is written that Abram had how many sons? Two sons, right? One by a bondwoman and the other by a free woman. Now, let's just kind of, for a moment, just refresh ourselves on this story. Remember, Abram was an old man. He was promised that out of him would come a great nation. God at one point says, look up into the sky, Abram. And he sees all these stars. And God says, as those stars, so shall your descendants be. So Abram had the promise that out of him would come a great nation. Sarah was his wife. Both of them were old, nearing 100 years old, had no children. So Abram and Sarah are thinking, well, how is this promise going to be fulfilled? Like, I don't know if God really knows what he's doing. I mean, and Sarah is saying, I I can't have children anymore. I mean, that time is fast for me. And so they came up with an idea how they could help God. Like, okay, God's promise is true, but obviously God hasn't really figured out how he's going to do it. So let's help him. How did they seek to help God? Well, Sarah came up with the idea, well, Abraham, why don't you take my maidservant, Hagar, have a child with her, which will be my, our child, my child, and uh, that will be the one that will inherit um, all things and which will be the progenitor, or the, what do you call it, the, um, the continual um, uh, patriarch of the nation that will come out of us. So uh, this happens, they have a son, and what is the name of their, that son, the son of Hagar, do you remember? Ishmael. Exactly, Ishmael. And then God comes to Abram again. And you can read this in uh, Genesis, you know, chapter 15, 16, 17, 18. You have this story there. Then God comes to him again and says, Abram, I'm going to make a covenant with you. And that covenant is going to involve that you're going to have a child with Sarah. Uh, Or he says, you're going to have a child. And then Abram says, may Ishmael live before you. It's like, God, we already have one. (laughs) And God says, no, no, you're going to have a child with Sarah. Sarah is going to have a child. That happens eventually. And what is the son son called? Isaac. Isaac, exactly. So they have a son called Isaac. So now you've got Ishmael by the bondwoman, the servant of of Sarah, Hagar. And then you have the son of the free woman, which is called Isaac. Now let's look at the illustration again. Galatians 4, verse 22. For it is written that Abram had two sons the one by the bondwoman, the other by the free woman. But the, he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise. Now, this is very, very important. The one is born according to the flesh. In other words, by the works of Abraham. It was like, okay, we'll do this. We'll do this. The works of the flesh, right? The fruit of self-righteousness. We can do this, God. You, you said it, but, but we'll do it. Right? The same attitude, basically, that you see in Exodus chapter 19 when the commandments were given to ancient Israel. Thank you, Lord. We'll do it. Right? But then the other is of the free woman. And how is that established? Through promise. promise. So they had to believe the promise of God. Right? It's like this. God gives us a promise, and we cannot understand how we can do it. But we say, God, I cannot do it, but you can. And I trust in you, and I put my faith in you. And though this seems unable, though I see I'm unable, and though this seems impossible, I believe that through you all things are possible. And so I step out in faith. That is, my friends, the new covenant. It is stepping out in faith. Believing that God will do in us what we cannot do in ourselves. When I look into the Ten Commandments and when you look into the Ten Commandments, what do we see? We see a life that we cannot live, especially when Jesus starts elaborating upon those commandments. Talking about the commandment about not murdering, and Jesus says, if you've ever been angry with your brother or sister, you've committed, you've committed murder in your heart. I say, it's not possible for me to never be angry. It's not possible for me never to lust. It's not possible for me to, to not have any other gods before you. It's not possible for me in the fullness to keep the Sabbath as it should be. And when we come to that point that we say it's not possible, <laughs> the next thing we must come to is that we believe that it's possible in the strength and power of God. And we say, okay, I enter into a covenant with you, Lord, but I tell you, it's not possible for me, but I believe it's possible for you. Do in me what I cannot do for myself. 
Now look at how this develops here in this illustration. Verse 23, But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise. Abraham and Sarah had to learn it the hard way, like many of us have to learn it the hard way. We try to do it in our own strength. We hear the promise of God and we say, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll live by that. But then we find out that we cannot do it without the power of God. You know, there's another, there's another story that I think of in, 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 the, in the Gospels. Remember Peter and he's with his disciples in the boat and Jesus comes walking on the water. Now, is it possible for a human being to walk on, to walk on water? No, no. I mean, all the laws of, 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 of gravity and all the rest, it just doesn't. It just doesn't agree with that. I mean, it's, it's not possible. And Peter looks at Jesus, and he says, you know, and, and Jesus bids him come. So on the command of Jesus, Peter steps out of the boat, and he does what is humanly speaking impossible. He walks on water. Now, Peter had a sinking nature. His nature was to sink, right? But he did what was impossible as long as he looked to Jesus, as long as he received his strength from Jesus. Now listen to this. You and I have a sinful nature. In other words, what we do best is sinning. Like Peter sinks, we sin. But even though we have a sinful nature that tends to sin, we can do the impossible when we look to Jesus, right? When we, in, when we receive from him power, when we receive from him strength, when we receive from him the Holy Spirit, when he writes his commandments in our hearts, as long as we look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, we'll be able to walk on water. We'll be able to do what is, humanly speaking, impossible. And that is living by the law of God. Living by the commandments is just as impossible as walking on water. Just as impossible in our own strength. But it's possible when we look at Jesus and receive strength from him. Now, look at how this illustration... Uh, we have a few minutes left here. Look at how it, how it, even, it, it even continues. So we're in verse, we'll pick it up again here in verse 22. Galatians 4, verse 22. For it is written that Abram had two sons, the one by the bondwoman, the other by the free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, that's Ishmael, and he of the free woman according to the promise. Now look at verse 24. Which things are symbolic, right? Which things are symbolic, for these are the two covenants. So here Paul makes it very clear. The two sons are a symbol of the two covenants. The one, and now, now he adds to it. Halfway, halfway verse 24. So he's given us one illustration, and that's the two sons. But now he's going to establish this, this illustration even more. Look at this. The one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar, for this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with their children. But the Jer Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. Now, let's look at this. Two covenants, symbolic, two sons. Here we have Ishmael, born according to the flesh, the works of Abraham, right? Here we have Isaac, born according to the promise, believing in the promise of God, God establishing what is, humanly speaking, impossible, was impossible for Sarah to have a child. God made it happen. Right? So here we have the two covenants. But then he adds to it. He goes back. Okay, that, that, that old covenant, or that first covenant, is Mount Sinai. Now that makes sense, because what happened at Mount Sinai? We will do it. Remember? They received the law. Thank you, Lord, for the Ten Commandments. We will do it. Now, this is, where the under, this is where the misunderstanding sets in, friends, because what happens is people read this and say, look, 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 the Old Covenant is Mount Sinai, so the Ten Commandments are now done away with. But it's not talking about the Ten Commandments being done away with. It's talking about the attitude of the people when receiving those Ten Commandments. Do you see that? That's what we're looking at here. So, the one is Mount Sinai, which was the same attitude as Abram had when he when he slept with Hagar to have Ishmael. He said, we'll do it. Lord, promise, you promised to have a son. I'll, I'll fix that. You know, has a son with Hagar. People receive the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. Oh, we can do that. Same attitude, right? Now look at what it says. Um, this is the Hagar from Mount Sinai in Arabia. And then he says, and it corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. What is Paul saying here? Paul is saying that the attitude that existed at Mount Sinai and the attitude that Abraham had 
before he believed the promise, what he did with Hagar and Ishmael, that attitude was still there in Jerusalem to the day that was, this was written. This is what Paul was saying. It's still there in Jerusalem. By the way, who gave the early disciples and the early apostles the most trouble? Like, like when Paul moved from town to town, from city to city, and he preached the gospel, who gave him the most trouble in doing that? The Jewish people. The Jewish people. It wasn't the Romans. Well, certainly he had some problems with the Roman Empire at times, but there was much more trouble from within than from without. And the trouble that came from within amongst the Jews was, hey, hey, what are you teaching the people? You know, they need to be circumcised. They need to keep the law of Moses. They need to do this. They need to do that. They can become righteous when they do this and this and this. Righteousness by works. Right? This was the old covenant. And Paul is saying, this existed even until this day, he says here. And we could even say, we could add a little <laughs> verse in there and say, even until this day within Adventism. It's still there. It's still there. Oh, Ten Commandments? Let, let's live up to the Ten Commandments, man. All the rest of the Christians are not doing but We will do it. Oh, we will do it. Oh, you Sunday keepers, we will do it. It's still there. It's still there. But we cannot do it. And we find out that we cannot do it. We fail. And so we must come to the point where God, I can't, but you can in me. Write your commandments in my heart. And look at what it says as we come to a close here. Look at what it says then about, again, then verse 26. What is compared to the covenant of God or the covenant, um, the, 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 uh, the new covenant? It says, but the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. In other words, this is so powerful. Verse 26, what Paul is saying is when you enter into the new covenant, the covenant where God does it in you, that is when your power is not coming from earth is coming from heaven. Now, what do we call the Jerusalem in heaven? The new Jerusalem. And that's why it's the new covenant. The new covenant is new because it's coming from the new Jerusalem. It's a power from above. It's a newer blood. Ellen White puts it that way, by the way. The newer covenant is newer because it's a newer blood. And that is that the blood of Jesus, Christ himself. Now, of course, all the Old Testament animals that were sacrificed pointed to that but here we have new about Jesus Christ himself was crucified. And in doing that, he made all heaven available for you and for me. All the strength from you, Jerusalem, is there for you and for me. And that's why we must trust in the strength that comes from above, from New Jerusalem. The strength of God, and not in our own human flesh, to accomplish the covenant. The covenant is a relationship. It's a relationship between God and man, between God and you. It's a covenant. God says, I want what, what I want to do with you. I want to do something amazing. I want to do something amazing. I want to take those Ten Commandments and I'll write them in your heart. I will establish those in your life if you allow me. And then he says something else in that covenant. We haven't had time to look into that. But the second part of the covenant in Hebrews chapter 10, he says, I will write my commandments in your heart. And then he says, I will remember your sins no more. What a deal. <laughs> How can you say no to that? Like, all those sins, I won't remember them. Now, God cannot forget, but he chooses to forget. Amen? He chooses not to remember, not to hold your sins against you. If you will come to him and ask for forgiveness, he will freely forgive you of all your sins. And if you come to him in faith, he will write his commandments in your heart. He'll say, okay, when you, but you must come to the end of yourself. You must come to the point where you say, God, I can't do this. I can't do this. I need you. I need you more than anything. Every single day, every single moment. I can't walk on water. I can't. But if I look unto you, I can do that which is impossible for man. I want, to, I want to live a righteous life. How about you? I want to have Christ as my righteousness in me. Not my own righteousness. That's why we titled this seminar, Christ Our Righteousness. When Christ has a place in our hearts, the fruit of the Spirit has a place in our hearts. The law has a place in our hearts. And you and I can live in a way that we could never have lived in our own strength. I hope this was helpful. Amen? Let's have a word of prayer as we close. Father in heaven, we want to thank you for your covenant, the covenant relationship that you have given to us and which is revealed in Scripture. Oh, what a beautiful promise that you want to write your commandments in our hearts, in our minds, 
and that you want to remember our sins no more. And this is only made possible because of the death of your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, when he died, that covenant was confirmed. It cannot be changed. It cannot be added to. Well, Lord, the Christian world at large has tried to change it, tried to add to it. But Lord, now we want to come to you and just believe it. Believe that you can do in us what we cannot do for ourselves. Lord, help us to trust more in you and less in our own works. Help us to let you take control so that we can see miracles in our life, miracles of, of the fruit of the Spirit being manifested in our deeds and in our decisions and in our words and our lives. Lord, we thank you that you want to do this for us. Thank you for this covenant and this relationship. Lord, we love you and we want to love you more. We ask these things in your beautiful name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.